This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. I wonder when you're going through a particular time of difficulty, of grief, discomfort, or hardship, how do you typically respond? Do you usually feel sorry for yourself? Do you usually get mad and lash out at other people around you? Do you sometimes question God's goodness? Where is God? Why would he let this happen? Do you think only about stopping the pain, discomfort, sorrow? Or do you at least try to think about how God might be using this season of your life to mature you as a Christian disciple, to free you just a little bit more from love of this world, or maybe to give you opportunities to witness? How about when, you, when someone maybe asks you what it means to be saved? How do you answer that question? Do you know the gospel well enough to summarize it for someone when they ask you about it? Do you tell others what it means that Jesus is both Lord and Savior? Do you tell someone what it looks like to respond to the gospel? How would you explain that? Should they pray? Should they do better? Should they go to church? What about your rights as an American citizen? If you feel that your rights have been violated or that you're losing some of the rights that you once had, do you think more, are you prone to think more in terms of getting what's mine? Or do you think about how your American citizenship might be used to serve the cause cause of Christ or to encourage other Christians? I think our passage speaks to all of this and more. Last Sunday, we left off with Paul and Silas in prison with their feet in stocks in Acts chapter 16. Their backs were bruised because they had been beaten with rods, and all of this was real persecution because Paul and Silas had been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was perceived by the people in Philippi as advocating or teaching customs or behaviors that are not lawful for us as Romans, they said, in verse 21. Of course, Paul did cast out the demonic spirit from the slave girl and in this way caused her owners to lose their hope of gain. But this was just the occasion, the obvious manifestation of the clashing of kingdoms, which we observed last week. Christ's kingdom clashing with the kingdom of this world. Our passage picks up with that storyline. And we'll see, I think, supernatural displays of God's power in at least three ways. Let's consider the scriptures together this morning and let's think about how we might follow the good example that we see and maybe even ways that we can live as faithful Christians in our own day, the ways that we can wisely and lovingly encourage one another, even while we live in a world that remains hostile to Christianity, hostile to the gospel and hostile to those who would preach and teach it. Now let's stand together as I read from Acts chapter 16. Standing is one of the ways we just show respect for God's word. I'll read from Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 25 down through verse 40. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. 
and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, Come, now, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Thank you, God, for your word. You can all be seated. For those who like to take notes, the main point, the main idea uh, that I'm seeking to draw and sort of apply to us today is this, that in this fallen world, genuine Christian living will provide opportunities for super, supernatural engagement with those around us. If you're able to write that down or want to, you're certainly welcome to. You can also see it on the inside of your bulletin. It's listed there for those who don't have as fast of uh, fingers as others. Uh, there are four points today, uh, some lengthier than others, but here's where we're going to go. First, looking at verse 25, the supernatural witness that we see there. Secondly, looking at verses 26 to 30, the supernatural in, in, intervention. Then verses 31 to 34, third point will be supernatural conversion. And then fourth and finally, the last six verses of the passage, practical prudence and love. We've got a lot to cover, so let's just dive straight in. Point number one, a supernatural witness. Looking especially at verse 25. I want to recognize, first off, this is an unnatural response. Think about what we hear or what we read in verse 25. After being stripped bare beaten with rods, thrown into prison, and having their feet fastened in stocks, Luke says that Paul and Silas were doing what? Praying and singing hymns to God. Who does that? No one with a natural mind, not with a mindset on this world. The inhabitants of this world, those who think that this life is their one opportunity to pursue happiness and enjoy luxury, they don't pray and sing hymns at midnight in a prison. This is not a natural response. This is a supernatural response. This is a distinctly Christian response. A spirit-filled, born-again, regenerate 
Christian response. The Bible teaches us that suffering is a Christian calling. Christ himself left us an example. Peter says, so that we might follow in his footsteps. The Apostle Peter went on to say that Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. The language there is saying that Jesus didn't fight for himself in the middle of the circumstances because he knew that there was going to come a day when everybody's going to stand before the throne of God and give an account for what they did and did not do. And Peter says all Christian disciples are to live in this same way, entrusting themselves to the one who judges justly. So this unnatural response is a supernatural response, a particularly Christian response. But notice, too, how this passage provides, it sort of highlights Paul and Silas being witnesses in weakness. They weren't suffering in silence in private, pretending like they weren't actually going through something on the outside and just kind of pulling back and isolating themselves to endure their suffering. No, they were suffering well and in a public way. The prisoners were told in verse 25, were listening to them. So often I've heard Christians talk and act like their best chance at witnessing to others is from a place of strength. But those Christians who've made the biggest impact on me have been the ones that I've seen faithfully trust Christ through the midst of hard stuff. I watched Leslie Day, for example, hold her baby girl, a twin, who was diagnosed with a rare cancer, sitting in a hospital room, holding her little girl and not knowing what would happen. She said something like, I don't know why God has done this, brought this into our lives, but we trust him. And we pray that he would help us to suffer well. That was 10 years ago in May. Isabella has had more surgeries than I can count. And she is still fighting her cancer. And God has certainly answered Leslie's prayer. Because she and her husband, Tim, have most certainly showed other Christians what it looks like to suffer well. Brothers and sisters, I pray that God would help us to not suffer in isolation, but to let others know about our weaknesses. And in this way, be a stronger witness for Christ than you might ever be. If God made you strong, let's show people what supernatural, otherworldly trust in a good Savior means. One more thing I want to say about this praying and singing in prison, praying and singing in the midst of their weakness. I want to ask the question that Carl Truman asked about 20 years ago, first off, and it's been such a good question to ask, especially with our cultural context and, and the, the propensity for American Christians to think of, of a triumphant, uh, only from a triumphant perspective about Christianity. He asked this question, what do miserable Christians sing? I wonder, don't you wonder what, what songs did Paul and Silas sing in the prison? Well, I don't know exactly what they were singing or exactly what they were praying, but here was Carl Truman's point when he wrote this article 20 years ago and many others uh, similar to it since then. He says, many of us despise the health, wealth, and happiness teachings of the American televangelists. The idea that Christianity, at whose center stands the suffering servant, the man who had nowhere to lay his head, and the one who was obedient to death, even death on a cross, 
should be used to justify the idolatrous greed of affluent Westerners simply begs belief. Nevertheless, he says, there is a real danger that these heretical teachings have seeped into evangelical life in an imperceptible yet devastating way. He says that it's affected not so much our theology as much as our horizons of expectation. We live, after all, he said, in a society whose values are precisely those of health, wealth, and happiness. So while we might not teach, the gospel means that we should be happy and wealthy all of our days, healthy all of our days, we expect it nonetheless. Well, how do we fight against this? Inclination. Well, he said, first, we should learn once again to lament. In fact, he pointed out specifically songs for how songs, the songs that we we sing repeatedly Sunday after Sunday, and even in our own families uh, day after day, how our songs catechize us. They teach us what to think about God, about Christ, about God's spirit, about the gospel. They teach us what to think about the Christian life. So Truman and many others have argued, as I said, this is a 20-year-old um, uh, idea that's been presented. Many, many have latched on. Uh, so there are some songs that we might sing that would help us to learn to lament again. We could sing all, old songs that teach us, that catechize us to trust in the Lord, even through hard circumstances, like It Is Well by Horatio Spafford. When peace like a river attendeth my way, good times come. When sorrows like sea billows roll, bad times, whatever my lot, you, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Where is our hope? Not in our circumstances, in good times or bad. That doesn't matter. Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it's well with my soul. My eternal destination is secure and that's what counts. We should sing songs that confess our weakness and remind us of Christ's strength. Think about the song, He Will Hold Me Fast by Ada Habershon and Matt Merker. When I fear my faith will fail. Oh, that's confessing my weakness. Christ will hold me fast. He's strong. When the tempter would prevail, when Satan's temptations would get the best of me because I'm weak, He, Christ, will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. I'm too weak. I can't do it. For my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. We should sing songs that confess our weakness and emphasize Christ's strength. We should sing songs that set our eyes on future glory, even as we live in present sorrow and pain. Think of Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson and Ben Shive. Do you feel the world is broken? The song goes, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Ah, this is the hope of glory. This is the hope of renewal. This is the promise that Christ has made that he one day will renew all things even though it doesn't look that way right this very second. So singing songs is a way to, uh, even in the misery of our current circumstance, to remind us of what's actually true, 
about our souls, about Christ's strength, and about our future destination. Second, Truman said, we should seek to make the priorities of the biblical prayers the priorities of our own prayers. This is speaking directly to the idea that Paul and Silas were praying and singing. What were they praying? I mean, I know what I would be praying. God, please get these shackles off my feet and open up those prison doors. That's what I'd be praying. What does the Bible say about prayer? How does the Bible teach us to pray even in the midst of sorrowful, difficult times? Well, we can think of how many prayers there are in the Bible. Did you know there are so many? I mean, we, we probably, many of us know the, the one main prayer of the Bible is the Lord's Prayer. But when his disciples, Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus taught them how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's so much that we might see about how that prayer teaches us how to pray, what to pray, what should be the substance of our prayers. But so too, the New Testament prayed, the New Testament authors showed us how to pray when the New Testament authors prayed for fellow churches and Christians. One example is how Paul prayed for the church in Thessalonica. He prayed that that church would grow in love for one another, that the God of peace would sanctify them, and that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in them. This is the substance of the biblical prayers. Brothers and sisters, let's aim to make our prayers sound like these, full of the stuff that the Bible values, not just the stuff that the television commercials value. Third and last, Truman said that our own personal ambitions and life plans should more reflect those of our Savior. So if we're going to follow our Savior's example, then our own personal ambitions and life plans should reflect the way that his ambitions and life plans were fitted to his goal. Then Truman quoted the very passage that speaks of Christ's own perspective. Philippians 2, a very popular passage. That this one who is in very nature God that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very uh, form of, the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, there is much for us to learn about our text for today, but I'm spending a significant period of time a bunch of time on one single verse because I think this opening verse of our passage is not one we can just skip by. I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us, uh, many of us in this room thinks that that verse is ridiculous. Who does that? And nevertheless, there it is. May God help us to follow this good example that Paul and Silas have given to us here. May he help us to take on a biblical perspective even in the midst of our circumstances, whatever they might be. May God help us to learn to shift our expectations, to change what we expect from the world and from this life. May God help us to change what we expect to get, how we expect to be treated, what we expect of our health or our success or our reputations in a world that is still marked by sin and sorrow and where many people in this world 
think that the Christian way of life is foolish at best and maybe even dangerous. Well, that was point number one. Only one verse. It'll speed up as we go, though. Point number two, looking at verses 26 to 30. Look there in verse 26. In the midst of this time of prayer and singing where Paul and Silas are locked away in the prison, Luke tells us that there was suddenly a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Luke clearly is saying that God intervened just as God had rescued Peter from, from prison twice before and some of the other apostles as well in the book of Acts. God was rescuing Paul and Silas here. Then Luke tells us in verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he threw, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Apparently, in Roman law, those jailers and soldiers who were responsible for keeping prisoners, if their prisoners escaped, they would suffer the punishment, whatever punishment it was, that the prisoner had deserved. And so the jailer here seems to be intending to kill himself, maybe out of some sense of honor or duty, or maybe to avoid some more painful death later on. Whatever the jailer's intent, though, Luke tells us that Paul stopped him. That's in verse 28. Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And then the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. They brought him. Then he brought them out, and he says to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved. Let's note the supernatural and odd intervention that we see here. The doors and the bonds don't hold the prisoners. That's the supernatural intervention, number one. Luke tells us there was the earthquake. Now, he's not saying, I don't think, that this is an act of Mother Nature, as we might call it. I don't think that's what he intends. Earthquakes don't unfasten or loosen every bond, and earthquakes don't open every door of a prison structure. So Luke, it seems, is telling us that God intervened, not merely giving us a natural explanation for what happened. So then the emphasis is not on the earthquake, but rather on God's sovereignty. First, his sovereignty in loosening all the bonds and opening all the doors. But secondly, his sovereignty in keeping all the prisoners held captive. God's intervention didn't set all the prisoners free. Now, of course, this does, this event of the doors opening and the fetters coming off, this does precipitate in the release of Paul and Silas. But in verse 28, Paul is able to tell the jailer when he comes running onto the scene, he's able to tell the jailer, we're all still here. This, it seems to me, is another supernatural intervention. And the point that Luke seems to be making for the reader is the point that I think the jailer got clearly when he, trembling with fear, falls down at Paul and Silas's feet. Whoever he is, Paul's God is king. That's what that jailer was thinking. And I think that's exactly the point. God sovereignly opens the doors of the prison and keeps prisoners captive. Whoever this God is, he is King. And this is the steady drumbeat of the book of Acts. He, God, Christ in particular, is the one who's being pointed at as king. Jesus is king. Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. He is the Christ prophesied of old, and he's the ruling and reigning sovereign at this very moment. 
magistrates and jailers and prisoners, they all have their own agendas and they, they flex their own power. But Christ is king over all of them and he demonstrates it yet again. Without the use of prisons or bonds, Christ keeps lawbreakers still. Without the use of military or political might, Christ sets his people free. But to what end? Does he just set prisoners free because he doesn't like people being captive? What kind of kingdom is Christ the king of? What mission has he given his people? This leads us to point number three. Hey, there's hope. Look how fast we went through number two. Point number three, supernatural conversion. Looking now at verses 31 to 34 and kind of leaping off of that last little bit of what the jailer says to Paul and Silas there when he falls down before them. And we see in verses 31 to 34, an entire reversal of posture. We've already noted that the jailer's understanding is that Paul's God is king, but there is more here. Only hours earlier, the jailer had counted Paul and Silas among the lowest of society, locking them in the inner prison. The jailer saw himself as the one who's in charge. Paul and Silas, these guys are nobodies. Inner prison is where they go. Lowest portion of society, that's where those people go. But now, the jailer not only is willing to bring them out of that inner prison, but the jailer himself is willing to do whatever Paul and Silas might tell him in order to be saved. He sees that the the, the roles have been completely reversed. The jailer's not in charge, and he knows it. He willingly places himself under submission to whoever Paul stands for. And he asks him, what do I do? Let's think about this a bit. The gospel and its promises and how those are put on wonderful display in our passage. The jailer asked the the great question, the $64 million question. In verse 30, what must I do to be saved? This is the question that every sinner must ask, ought to ask. Only a fool doesn't ask this question. What must I do to be saved? And what does Paul and Silas tell him to do? What what do they tell him? Well, they say in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. The gospel in a nutshell in this passage is believe in the Lord Jesus. John Calvin comments on this short portion of the verse saying that this is but a short, cold, and hungry definition of salvation. And yet, it is perfect to believe in Christ. Calvin said, for Christ alone has all the parts of blessedness and eternal life included in him, which he offers to us by the gospel. Calvin's point is something I think we should take to heart this morning. And that is that Christ himself is the mark where we must aim our belief or faith or trust. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Such a short statement that's incredibly profound. The aim, the mark, where we, would put, we should put our belief, our faith, our trust, our hope, is the Lord Jesus. The person of Jesus Christ is the substance of the gospel. 
And his work of justifying, forgiving, saving sinners flows out from his person. Who he is is what produces what he does. Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, the God-man, which was sent into the world to justify sinners to the work of redeeming them. And this is exactly what he did as God's propitiating sacrifice. That passage that Chris read for us just a moment ago from Romans 3. The atoning sacrifice, this, this one that satisfies God's wrath. That is what Jesus did. Jesus did that and also is the resurrected Messiah or Christ. So he was not only delivered up for our trespasses, for our sins, but he was also raised for our justification. Jesus then is the first fruits, as the Bible calls him, of resurrection, which will be for all who belong to Christ at his coming. This is the gospel that Jesus died and was raised again. He ascended and sits right now at the right hand of God, the father from whence he will come and make all things new, bringing reward for those who trust and believe in him and bringing judgment to those who remain in their sin. Friends, Jesus is the better Adam. He is the better Moses. He is the better Israel. He is the author and the finisher of the new covenant in which all who simply look to or believe in him are reconciled to God and will be saved from God's wrath in the end. That's the good news. Now, you might be thinking, Mark, you're sure getting a lot out of that little phrase, believe in the Lord Jesus. I think I am, but I think I'm doing it rightly. Because look at verse 32. What do you think Paul and Silas were talking about when they spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and his household? Well, I think they were given the same kind of summary that I've just given. I think that's what they were talking about. This is the gospel that must be believed. The Lord Jesus. What does it mean that he's Lord? Who is it? Who is this Jesus? Ah, this is the gospel. What then are the promises of the gospel? That's also there in verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And the promise is you will be saved. What does Paul promise the jailer if he and his household will simply believe? What will they receive? Well, saved is the word that's used there. Salvation is the expanded version of such a word. And salvation encompasses everything that the gospel promises. It's kind of the big word that sets over the top of a lot of other words that specifically say what salvation entails. So, for example, in Acts chapter 2, Peter promised that those who repent and believe would receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are included in salvation. In Acts chapter 4, all who believed were united with one another in real love and fellowship. Included in salvation is the fellowship of believers. Later on in the book of Acts, all who believe are promised eternal life, justification, righteousness before God, and they will not be put to shame on the last day. First six. These are all promises included in salvation, justification, eternal life, righteousness, no shame before God. All who believe, first Peter two are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And it is their privilege, those who are saved now and forevermore to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness 
and into his marvelous light. Salvation then not only includes a new status, but a mission to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them. This is what the gospel promises. So the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus. Who is Jesus and what has he done? What are the promises of the gospel? You will be saved and all that salvation entails. What then is the response? Still, we don't know what did the jailer do? Well, on the the one hand, belief is what he did, right? The short answer of what must I do to be saved is verse 31, believe. But what does belief look like on the outside? What does it look like when someone believes? Well, in one sense, it's an entirely new way of life. Spiritual life, regeneration, being born again is something radically new. So the Bible speaks in terms of the old self and the new self. So in Romans 6 and Ephesians 4, for example, the old self has been crucified with Christ. The old self belongs to a former way of life that is corrupt and full of deceitful desires. But Ephesians 4, Romans 8, Colossians 3, the new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This newness isn't complete, of course, in this life, but Christians are those who put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed as God continually shapes Christians into the image of Christ. But this putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new is something that takes a lifetime to observe. It's not something you can observe in an instant, in a moment. What then is the instantaneous, visible display of Christian conversion in the Bible? How do you know this person's not a non-Christian anymore? They're now a Christian. Well, the Bible teaches us that it's baptism. And we see that right here in our passage. Theologically, God makes a sinner spiritually alive and the regenerated sinner repents and believes the gospel. And this is what it means to be a Christian. So what it means to be a Christian theologically is to be a believing one, a regenerated one, a repenting one. But biblically speaking, the, the way someone becomes a Christian, the way other Christians and the watching world know this one is a Christian is baptism. In verse 32 of our passage this morning, Luke says that Paul spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer and to all who were in his house. And during the night, verse 33, he was baptized, he and all his family. Two things I want to note on this very quickly. First, baptism is preceded by the preaching of the word. And believe is the only imperative in this passage. So in other words, the guy, the jailer asked the question to Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? The only thing that's explicitly an imperative, this you must do, is believe. Belief then implies there's a substance to what the jailer is believing. Believe what? Well, believe the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in who he is and what he's done. Believe the substance of the gospel. So then we must not assume that baptizing the jailer's family, as it's said here in this passage, included some among his family who did not believe. We see the one imperative is to believe. 
we see they preached, they proclaimed the gospel, the word of the Lord to the jailer and his family. And the result was this visible display of repentance and faith, baptism. Who are those then that got baptized? We don't assume, well, believers and some other ones who didn't believe. No, no, we see that the the obvious flow of the passage is those who were baptized were those who believed the word of the Lord as it was communicated to them by Paul and Silas. So for those uh, who, in my paedo-baptist brothers and sisters, uh, those who are coming from a Methodist or Presbyterian background and who see infant baptism here, because, look, his family got baptized. Well, the responsibility is on my paedo-baptist brothers and sisters who see infant or child in this passage anywhere. I just don't see it. I see family, and I see those who were proclaimed the word of the Lord responding with a visible demonstration of their belief But I don't see anybody here being baptized who is not consciously able to step forward and say, yep, I want to be associated with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. So I don't see it there. The most obvious reading is that baptism was experienced by those who heard the gospel, who understood its requirements and its promises, and who were publicly confessing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I'd like to say about that passage. For those of you that have been kind of waiting, when's Mark going to bring out the polity in in the book of Acts? Well, there's a little bit of it there. A second, uh, this passage is in keeping with the pattern of Acts and also Jesus' commissioning statement at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus gives this commission. The passage shows us what the disciples were doing as they obeyed Jesus' command. Believer's baptism, then, is the initial and outward sign that this person is now a Christian. These These Christians now affirm this one. And this new Christian is united with those who are already following Christ together. This is what baptism means. And this is what we see played out in our passage this morning. So friends, here's an application point to the sort of theological and and polity stuff that I've been going through just now. Think about it like this. Your Christian conversion is about more than just your personal faith in Jesus. The Bible teaches that personal faith is certainly required. But that faith is to be experienced and encouraged and understood and matured in fellowship with other believers. An entrance into the sort of fellowship that produces Christian maturity, the kind that I'm talking about here, is baptism into local church membership. If what I'm saying here seems strange or confusing to you at all, then let's get together and talk it over. It is vital that we understand some of these basic truths of Christianity, the way the New Testament teaches us Christianity is to be lived out. I'd be happy to talk with you about all of this more. But understand at this moment that God has designed our personal and individual lives to be utterly dependent. We are not autonomous beings. We are not independent beings. We are utterly and completely dependent. We are dependent first upon Christ, for our existence and our salvation. And we are also dependent upon other Christians. And this is how we see Paul's perspective play out in the remaining portion of our passage today. Point number four, practical prudence and love. Looking now at these last handful of verses, verses 35 to 40. Luke tells us in verse 35, when it was day, the magistrates, the governors, sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying that the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. The jailer seems to be happy about the situation. Hey, it's, it's reversed. You're free now. 
Luke is not telling us, I don't think, that the magistrates have had a conversion experience like the jailer. I don't think that the change overnight was that the magistrates somehow or another heard the gospel that Paul and Silas were proclaiming. And now they too wanted to follow Paul's God and affirm Paul's mission by releasing these prisoners. And we might speculate about what they heard or why they changed their mind. Maybe they heard about the earthquake in the middle of the night. And so maybe in superstition, uh, you know, some kind of superstitious response, they thought, oh, this is, this is, this is bad juju, and so we should get rid of uh, Paul and Silas in this way. While we're speculating, I think it's more likely they had time to think about what had happened the day before. And they were coming to realize that they basically joined a mob without any real legal justification for the kind of punishments that they'd handed down. I think that's probably a more likely speculation. But still, that's speculation. Either way, I don't think Paul is intending to tell us that this gesture is an indication of the magistrate's conversion. This seems to be a a, a politically expedient act, not a sign of genuine conversion. They wanted, as verse 36 says, Paul and Silas to go in peace. They wanted to be rid of them. But Paul refused. We see here a prudent call for a public apology. Verse 37 says that when the word came to him that the magistrates had sent police officers, soldiers to relay the message, Paul said, you send a message back to them. And his message was, they, those magistrates, have beaten us publicly. We are uncondemned and we are Roman citizens. And you've thrown us into prison and now you will not throw us out secretly. You come and apologize yourselves. This is an interesting passage. This is the second time that Paul, in this passage this morning, refused easy and immediate freedom. The first was when the prison doors were open and the chains were gone. He could have gone then, but he didn't. Now he gets word from the magistrates, you can go, and he still doesn't. What's up with that, Paul? It's curious. Why? Why is he doing that? Well, in our attempt to try to understand that why question, why is he doing that? Our understanding, attempting to understand what the passage is, is conveying to us. I think we might be helped by considering the specific words of Paul's refusal. How does he, what does he say specifically in his refusal to leave? He said the punishment was public. He said that Silas and he were uncondemned. And he said that they were both Roman citizens. So he refused to leave quietly on the basis that their punishment had been a public one. They were not condemned. This was mob justice. And in fact, they were Roman citizens. And this legally should not have happened. This is the sort of violation of liberty uh, and this sort of violation of, of liberty for a Roman citizen could have been punished by death on the magistrates. So this historically was something that the magistrates really should not have overstepped and done. Now, it may be that Paul saw this as an opportunity, not for his own benefit. We can easily see that Paul is not after his own luxury. If anybody in Christian history is not after living a life of health, wealth, and prosperity, it is the Apostle Paul. He is after the proclamation of the gospel and the conversion of sinners and the establishment of local churches. But he 
calls the magistrates to live up to their Roman obligations, I think, in order to establish a precedent that might benefit the rest of the Christians in Philippi long after Paul is gone. Indeed, the magistrates would be probably less likely in the future to pursue mob justice against any other believers among the Philippian church after getting called out for this overstep for Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. Now, there, there are good questions that we could ask ourselves underneath the one question of how might this example impact the way that we think about our own political rights and citizenship in America? How might Paul's prudent act here and what I think is him trying to be a precedent setter to help the situation for the church there in Philippi, how might this cause us to act in certain ways, to speak in certain ways about our own citizenship in the country in which we live? Well, the short answer is, I'm not really sure. I know that we should pray for all sorts of people, including those who are in high positions of authority, 1 Timothy 2, asking for God to bend their wills toward governing well. I know that we ought to take advantage of the political process that's available to us as individual citizens of America, of Texas, of Upshur or Gregg County, and even as participants in the various structures within our specific communities, school boards, municipalities, districts, and the like. But I think maybe a principle that we can apply is that we should pray and participate not merely for our own benefit or to benefit our own demographic, which is what the American political system would constantly tell us we should do. Instead, we should use our citizenship, our participation in service to Christ. So maybe to say it like this, whatever we do, we ought to think and act more like Christians who happen to live in 21st century America and less like 21st century Americans who just so happen to be Christians. There are a whole slew of ways we might apply that in our lives, but I think that's a good principle that'll help us as we seek to do it. In any case, Paul got what he wanted that day. In verse 39, Luke tells us that the magistrates came and apologized to them. And they took them out, out of the prison, and asked them to leave the city. So they still ask them to leave, but after seemingly a public apology. So they were able to leave, Paul and Silas, but there was one more thing they were going to do before they left. So if you're, if you're thinking with me that what Paul's motive here is in not leaving the prison when he's told to go quietly is that he wants to help the church in Philippi, well, then he's already been thinking about the church in Philippi more than just himself. But this most definitely is him pointing his affections and his attention toward the church in Philippi. In verse 40, we're told about this loving concern that he has for the church. Before he leaves town, he goes and visits Lydia. Lydia was the first convert that they'd seen in Philippi. She was the God-fearing, God-worshipping woman who was described as someone who had some wealth and who had a house big enough to let Paul and his companions come and stay with her while they were in Philippi. She is one who'd heard the gospel, who'd believed. And Luke says that Paul and Silas also saw the brothers. That's there in verse 40 as well. 
This is a New Testament phrase that's commonly used to refer to Christians. So then it seems what is happening here is Paul is gathering together with the church there in Philippi before his departure. To do what? Well, to encourage them. In verse 40, that's what Luke tells us he did. Encouragement was the purpose of the visitation. Not encouragement for Paul and Silas. So interestingly, it's not Paul and Silas that's being encouraged here. Of all the folks in this passage, it seems like those are the two who need it the most. They just got beat. They just got thrown into the inner prison. Certainly the Lord miraculously set them free. But man, what a terrible experience. These guys are the ones who need encouragement, but it's not them who get it. It's the brothers, the Christians, the church. Even in the midst of Paul and Silas's weakness, persecution, their hardship, it is the church they're aiming to see encouraged and edified and protected even and grow. This was Paul's last time to see the church in Philippi for a while. And he's thinking and acting like a shepherd, like a pastor, like an elder. He's thinking and acting like every church member ought to, not as a consumer, but as a producer. He's not thinking and acting about what he can get from his church family, but rather what he can give to his church family for their encouragement and edification. He's thinking and acting like there are more important things in life than his own personal comforts. He's thinking and acting like the fellowship and the love that they share as believers is not diminished in the least when they face hardship and opposition. He's thinking and acting like God is in charge of the circumstances and Christians are simply called to be faithful. He's acting that out in real time. In one sense, brothers and sisters, our our passage this morning is full of supernatural activity. God supernaturally gave Paul and Silas joy in the midst of their affliction. God supernaturally opened a prison and God supernaturally granted spiritual life to a jailer and his family, a jailer who was once an enemy of the gospel. And yet, brothers and sisters, I want to say that our passage is also full of the sort of everyday Christian activity that's supposed to mark our lives. It's been my regular claim that everyday Christianity is the most spectacular stuff that anyone can experience in this world. It's the everyday gospel that God uses to bring dead sinners back to life. It's the everyday work of the local church to make disciples by preaching the gospel, baptizing new converts, teaching one another to obey all that Christ has commanded. It's the everyday Christian response to hardship and affliction that shines a brilliant light on this dark landscape of this fallen world. As a matter of fact, in God's providence, I got a note from a pastor friend this week that illustrated the very thing that I'm talking about this morning that I think is on display in our passage. On June 28, last Tuesday, the senior pastor of a church in Portland, Oregon, shared his experience of a riot targeting their downtown church building from the night before. He wrote this. He said, about 8 p.m. on Monday, June 27. A crowd of between 150 to 200 people assembled at the park near our church. This crowd was protesting the Supreme Court decision striking down Roe v. Wade, and they were retaliating against those who represented a pro-life position. The pastor said they, 
marched out and marched to our office building two blocks away from uh, around the block, chanting the sort of slogans that you've heard on the news since Roe was overturned. There was a heavy police presence, he said, in the neighborhood, and this had been openly organized. The crowd approached, and the company contracted to board up all the windows withdrew, with only half of the building finished. After circling the block, a group of well-prepared and fully masked individuals broke off. Using umbrellas and masks to shield their identity from security cameras, they smashed every ground floor window on the side of the building that had not yet been boarded up. And they covered the side of the building in vile graffiti aimed specifically at Christians. He said the damage was done in just moments and the level of organization and coordination was striking. The pastor went on to explain some of the damage. He said a few window AC units were damaged and there's still a lot of glass to replace and graffiti to remove. But... In answer to prayer, there was no fire, no serious injuries, and no further attempts to damage the building. The entire half block was behind police tape, and Pinkerton security was present throughout the night. This morning, he said, this is last Tuesday morning, cleanup continues. Our community coffee shop was able to open, and many of our non-Christian neighbors and regulars, regular attendees on Sunday morning, have expressed real sympathy. Our staff is praying for gospel conversations and opportunities to come out of this. The backside of the block is housing owned by the church and filled with members and staff. And last night, the backyard of one of our staff pastors was filled with non-Christian neighbors who were shaken up by the event. He sees these as gospel opportunities. Listen to how he asks for prayer. We've been told that this is not the end, that we should be prepared for fuller violence, for further violence and harassment in the coming weeks and months. And then he said, pray that our staff and members would seize every opportunity for the gospel. Many are asking us this morning how we're doing. And every one of those conversations is an opportunity to explain our hope in Christ. Not to mourn their situation, not to talk about how bad the other side of the political aisle is, but to have a gospel conversation. How are you doing? Here's my hope in Jesus. He asked, pray that we'd have wisdom as we cooperate with Portland police in their investigation. There is extensive video and other forensic evidence that we've provided. Pray that our members and staff, especially our coffee shop staff, would continue to have an open and welcoming, hospitable attitude toward our neighborhood. Listen to what he's asking for. Pray that we don't grow hard-hearted against our neighbors. Why? Because as persecution goes... This was mild, and we're not surprised because Jesus has warned us of it. But we don't want this to be an opportunity for the enemy to sow seeds of fear or bitterness or suspicion that would cause us to pull back from our lost neighbors. We want to be those who demonstrate the truth and power of the gospel as we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us as Jesus taught us to do in Matthew chapter 5. I think that's a perfect display of exactly the kind of heart posture that's exemplified by Paul and Silas here in our passage this morning. May God help us to be that kind of Christian, that kind of local church that sees every circumstance of our lives as an opportunity 
to be a witness for Christ. And may he help us to do that well. Would you bow with me? And let's. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.